the cool thing about knock-knock jokes is that someone always says, who's there? There's a question, and then there's an answer. And today, an all-question episode to wrap up Season 7 of Akimbo. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second with answers to eight of your questions. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, it's Bernadette G, and I'm here to talk to you about how you can become a better storyteller. Storytelling is not an art reserved for the chosen few. It's a skill that you can learn. Just like the students who've taken part in the Story Skills Workshop have done. Actually, I had a story to tell that was really important for me, but also was going to be very, very important for people in the future. It's been absolutely life-changing for me to see stories everywhere and to see my own stories. I was surprised that the learning was as much in the giving as in the receiving. We got to not only learn about storytelling. We actually got to practice using stories in our everyday life. The biggest shift I've found is now my own stories and the stories that I really want to tell are bubbling to the surface. I can't stop seeing them. Whether you're just starting out or you're an experienced storyteller, this is a place where your stories will get better in a very short time, guaranteed. If you're ready to become a better storyteller, I hope you'll join us. Find out more at thestoryskillsworkshop.com. Hey, Seth. My name is Jay. I'm from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm from a long line of teachers. And although I currently make a living as a digital content creator, uh, and I do teach a lot of students online through workshops, courses, public speaking, podcasting, you name it, whenever I bring a lot of the ideas that I've learned through digital education, or that I'm learning through people like you, whenever I bring these ideas to my family full of traditional educators, they bristle. And I think in part they bristle because who are you, Seth or Jay, to not be from our world and to be proposing how we do our work. So obviously there's a misunderstanding and a a better way to package the information. But I'm curious how you would go about winning over traditional educators who are jaded by the administration, who believe that folks in tech or online entrepreneurs have this cavalier way of supposing they know the best solution. How would you start winning over evangelists in the more traditional world of education to start thinking better about what education should be? Thanks for kicking this off. You're pointing out something about marketing as much as you're pointing out something about education, which is that it's very difficult to change someone's mind, and it's really hard to lead without enrollment. And so in every field, when new ideas arise, there are people who view those new ideas as a problem, as a threat, as silly, as not worth their time. Because the new ideas might be unproven, because the new ideas don't match the way they see the world. And mostly because new ideas bring change, and change brings uncertainty. And if you like things the way they are, if you're comfortable with your status, and you have a sinecure, a place that feels safe, change is not your friend. And so, yes, you are right. People in Silicon Valley are insanely cavalier about just about everything. They think that problems are easily solved, and they're almost always not easily solved. And the plan never works out 
the way they expect. There's no business plan that any company has ever created that matched what actually happened in the real world. But that wasn't the heart of your question. The heart of your question is, how do we gain enrollment from folks who aren't on board? And the answer, regardless of whether it's education or not, is we take responsibility and give away credit. We model behavior and let other people follow. That many people who have earned the right to be in front of a classroom, who have their masters, who have paid their dues, who understand the ins and outs of the system, aren't signing up to say, what's the innovative new thing I can do now that the pandemic has shifted everything upside down? Instead, they're wondering how are things going to get back to normal? They're not showing up at school ready to take a risk. They're showing up at school eager to do their job the way they see their job. And so the opportunity of insurgents, of leaders, of people who want to innovate is to show up in a different way, to model the behavior, not to insist that other people change, but to go first. And when it doesn't work, explain what didn't work and take responsibility. And when it does work, let other people take credit because they'll grab that idea they had, quote, all along and start to use it as well. This is the way every system changes. This is the way education will change as well. We need folks like you who are out there in the front lines, experimenting, innovating, because as we'll see in our next question, the world really is upside down. Thanks for doing this work. Hi, Seth. This is Mariah from New York, and here is my question. I have three children, two of whom are in elementary school, second and third grade, and a 14-month-old. The virtual learning system is quite a challenge for us. We navigate it as best we can, visiting the online apps, completing assignments, and attending Google Meets with the teachers. This fall, we have been on a hybrid schedule. On virtual days, I am balancing my time between my business, their assignments, and managing care for my 14-month-old. A new positive effect of school is that teachers seem to have more freedom to be creative. They use outdoor classrooms and incorporate more game playing into the day. And it feels very natural and more open to new ideas and curriculum. More challenges arise on the virtual days in trying to guide them into the virtual meet, the teacher trying to converse with the kids online and messaging the assignments to accomplish, and then the parent participation being an awkward addition for all of us. The children now see my partner and I at our computers so often, and the lines between work and home life are now very blurred. We've spent much of our parenting years limiting screens at home, and now it seems as though we are all in front of our screens more than ever. Listening to your past podcasts on the education system and your recent podcast about Zoom sessions, I'm curious to know your thoughts on how the system could evolve for the better. And what can help these school-age children, the youngest population specifically, in these times of virtual exchange? Thank you for all your sharing and insight. I was a designer at Acumen a few years back, and I've followed you ever since. Thanks again. Thanks for this. Your kids are really lucky to have you. This pandemic has turned so many things upside down, not the least of which is schooling, particularly for young kids. Because parents particularly two-income couples, but all parents are dealing with the challenge of having to do their work, having to make a living. At the very same time, they're trying to raise their family the best they can. 
And so parents, regardless of whether they're single or double income, whether they're doing it on their own or in a team, are under stress. They're under stress because they're trying to make a living, trying to do their work at the same time. They're trying to do the best job they can of parenting. And many people are working at home, which is really stressful because what it really means is you're living at the office. And so boundaries are hard. Doing two things at once is hard. Multitasking doesn't really work. And kids, kids need us. And so how to handle all of this? Well, the first thing that I would say is you're doing great. And you need to cut yourself and your family a lot of slack because we built a system based on a steady state. We optimized it for 100 years, organized around yellow school buses and apples in the lunchbox and all the rest of it. And all of that got disrupted. So there's no way it's going to be the same as it was. There's no way that we're going to be able to relax into the existing system because we haven't figured out what the existing system is yet. But then the second thing that I would share with you is this. The real opportunity here, if you've got an eight-year-old or a six-year-old or a nine-year-old, is not to teach that kid how to get into college, not to teach that kid calculus. The real opportunity is to teach kids to learn to learn, to learn to get along with each other, to be able to understand that you can't say you can't play, that what we are teaching kids to do before even middle school is simply the act of projects, of inquiry, of cooperation, of executive function, of metacognition, thinking about thinking. These tasks have gone by the wayside because we tested the things that were easy to test. And so the opportunity, whether or not you keep your kids home, whether or not they take a gap year at the age of eight, is to help them understand that Spending the day with a coloring book is absolutely fine as long as you do the best you can with the coloring book. Nobody needs you to do great on a standardized test when you're eight. There's no function there. It doesn't demonstrate any ability for the future. But self-directed, project-based learning, that is something we can teach a kid from a really young age, from the age of three. There's a difference between completing a Lego kit by following every instruction and completing a Lego kit by building what you want to build, but finishing it, finishing it and making it something you're proud of and doing it in cooperation with someone else. That project-based, self-directed learning is something we can teach our kids. And it turns out that the fact that you can't sit next to them the whole time is a plus because what we're trying to create is an environment of curiosity and inquiry and the idea that the kids can do it themselves. So, no, we're not abandoning them, but we're also not saying you must comply and you must get ready for the test. There'll be plenty of time for that. Right now, we're teaching you to learn to learn. Thanks for this question. My name is Leroy and for nearly two years, I've been creating a business based on something I, I identified with, a demographic group that I'm a part of. You know, Remarkable was pretty difficult to, to come by, but through, you know, voracious studies and practice, I believe that I'm there. And this is part, partially based on the reactions to those I share my story and my products with. The problem is I'm a bit afraid to go to market. 
although I have everything in place, including a bit of funding, I'm afraid that I will not be able to keep up if there's an initial surge in sales on a website. How can I prepare for this? How do I ease myself into the market as a one-man operation who will have to design, design the graphics? I designed most of them already. And print them and garments, men's and, 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 and other merchandise. And is this, I know how Kickstarter comes in? I'm, I'm, I'm not too sure. Do you have any advice on, you know, how I can ease into the market? Thank you so much. Thanks for the, for the good work, man. Oh, I totally get the feeling of not being ready. And I can understand why you are hesitating because this part's really juicy. This is a really good moment to be in. You've done your planning. You feel the potential. You see the opportunity. The next step is fraught. Pressing that button that says ship, it's fraught. But if it doesn't ship, it doesn't count. And shipping to the market will teach you an enormous amount. Mostly, it will teach you that nothing you planned on worked out the way you expected. It will teach you that while some people won't be able to get enough of what you did, some people won't get the joke. And you're going to have to iterate and iterate and iterate. The analogy I've got for you, the best one I've got, is you can plan for a really long time your trip to the Grand Canyon. But until you start going to the Grand Canyon, when you hit detours, when you realize the car needs gas, when something comes up along the way, that is when you're actually taking a trip to the Grand Canyon. So whatever project or service you've got in store, I'm imagining it's of service to people. It's generous. It's going to help them get to where they're going. So don't hold back. Bring it to market. A small market. Don't launch it on some national TV show. Bring it to 10 people. If they tell 10 friends each, you're on your way. If they don't, you've learned something important. And then you can cycle. And then you can cycle again. This cycling, that is the work. The planning is fun. The planning is important. But the cycling, that's the work. Hey, Seth, this is Dayton from Salt Lake City, USA. First off, kudos on Alt-MBA becoming a B Corp. I think that's amazing. Uh, But my question refers back to the episode, uh, The Zoom Revolution, where in your list, one was on gamification of interactions using the Zoom technology. Were you implying in that particular one that uh, that the use of this technology uh, creates a meritocracy, something that um, something like what Bridgewater is doing now. Anyways, thanks. Uh, really love the podcast. Thanks for this, Dayton. Yes, you're ahead of me. As soon as the industrial entities get their hands on a new game they can invent, they will turn it into a game that can be played mostly to their advantage. And so the example of Bridgewater is a fine case. People who go to work at Bridgewater are competitors. They like to win. And so the game that's created at Bridgewater is a game not with board pieces and shoots and ladders, but with competition, with scorekeeping, with apparent transparency, and a lot of competition. And so, yes, Gamification of meetings is inevitable, and the question is, will we embrace games that make us feel good, that get better creativity, 
out of the meeting that use our time more efficiently? Or will we become victims to games that benefit other people? Of course, that's up to us, but we have to see it coming. And part of the reason I made that podcast episode is so that we could see it coming. Thanks. Hi, Seth. This is Gwen calling from Los Angeles. I have a question. It's about the last episode um, about the Zoom revolution. I am a food photographer, and I was thinking of starting a Zoom group for other food photographers to discuss the same problems that I'm having as a freelancer in hopes that maybe they have something to say about it or some wisdom on the topic. Um, and my question is, if I'm looking for people who have are having the same issues as myself, can I just make it for people like me and not think about who else would be interested in this? That's my question. Okay, thanks. Bye. Yeah, this is a great question. And the answer, of course, is yes. This is the only group you can organize. That a group that says anyone who wants to join the group, join the group, isn't much of a group if it's generic. The goal is to be specific, to be particular, to be peculiar, to say it's just for people who are in this moment of their lives. Now, there are lots of variations of what those people are, and whichever definition you pick is yours. If it turns out no one joins, well, you haven't lost anything. But if the wrong people join, that's a problem. So we begin by identifying who the right people are. Thanks for this, Laura. Hey, Seth. This is Jared from Melbourne, Australia. First up, I want to say thank you for the work that you do. You've been such a big part of fundamentally transforming how I view my role in this culture, in work, and in marketing. I've been thinking a lot lately about ratchets, these mechanisms that we build into our culture and into our economy that drive our outcomes in a particular direction. You see, I've mostly heard you talk about ratchets in a really negative sense before, and I'd been really thinking about ratchets and how many positive ones I could see, as well as about how many negative ones I've seen. And your episode on the game theory of carbon was the most positive I'd heard you speak about them. And it's inspired from that. I really started thinking, well, surely building really, really good ratchets that have the kind of outcome and consequences that we want is the most powerful thing we could possibly be doing to change our culture and create the kind of outcomes that we want to have. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And if that makes sense, I would love more on you from you about how we create ratchets that give us what we want. This is a great point, Jared, and thank you for giving me a chance to chime in here. Yes, I completely agree that the network effect and ratchets and game theory are the engines of our culture change, and they have been for a long time. And what we've learned from the internet is that the network effect, the idea that something works better when other people are using it, turns out to be the thing that can change our culture the most quickly to get an idea to spread the most effectively. And so if I haven't been clear, when I point out negative examples of this, I'm trying to do that to highlight the pitfalls of doing it wrong, of doing it selfishly, of doing it for the short term, and hoping that 
that we can lay the groundwork for how we can persist with positive ratchets. And there are so many in our lives that people are healthier than ever before. That's a ratchet. Because when you are surrounded by people who are healthy, you are more likely to want to be healthy. And we could go through a long list of things that spread in that way. It turns out that for a long time, organized education was a ratchet that turned in one direction. And it was the disruption of the internet and the idea that quick hits, race to the bottom, talking about stuff that isn't true just because it gets you a click, that disrupted a long, long ratchet toward rational, measured, scientific method thinking. And so, yes, I do believe that there is an enormous opportunity in front of each of us in our own circles to create these opportunities. I mean, if we go all the way back to Alcoholics Anonymous, which is about as low-tech a tribal organization tool as you can imagine, it is also one of these ratchets. So it's right in front of us. We've just got to decide we care enough to do something about it. Hi, Seth. This is Adam from Oxford in the UK. I really enjoyed your recent podcast on the Zoom revolution. I was struck by your optimism on how this is revolutionizing the way we collaborate and how this will transform how we work together in the future. I'm really interested to hear your views on where the limits for creative teams using these tools are today and what the theoretical limits are in the future. I'll use an example of one of the highest achieving creative teams in history, the Beatles. Could John Paul, George and Ringo and producer George Martin have created a masterpiece such as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band remotely? And further to this, what if they had never met and not spent thousands of hours playing together in Hamburg, Germany in the early years, bonding whilst on tour, on tour buses and in hotels? Could the intangible magic have happened another way? Thanks, Adam. A question that integrates the Beatles and Zoom has to be a good one. I think the thing that gets in the way of creative teams using these new technologies is fear and momentum. There's nothing about the technology that causes it to be magical or causes it to be non-magical. That the telephone enabled far more conversations between editors and authors than ever would have been possible 100 years earlier. I don't think we point to the telephone and say, the telephone enabled this book to exist. But the fact is, this book wouldn't have existed without the telephone. Well, now we're multiplying it times 100. And I'm remembering those classic Harlem Globetrotter moves that I saw when I was 12 years old and my parents took me to the auditorium in Buffalo to watch the Globetrotters play. Those no-look passes, the complicated moves, the backs and the forths. The Globetrotters were one of the only teams that figured out how to do that in basketball because everybody else was so busy trying to score a basket as opposed to working together. But I think that what can happen in Zoom and is already happening is a level of collaboration that we couldn't conceive of even if we'd spent years in Hamburg playing in smoky bars. So there's something very special about shared hardship, about shared magic that happens in person. I'm not minimizing it at all. I miss it a great deal. But it is also true that with proper organization and structure, George Martin and John Paul George and Ringo could put together something as magic, if not more magic, than Sgt. Pepper. Because at their disposal was a high-efficiency way to collaborate without all the cruft, without all the arguments. So 
I believe that we are going to see an explosion of cooperative, creative work that gets done by people who find each other, not because they are in geographical proximity, not because they're just down the street in Liverpool, but because they're the right people in the right place at the right time who choose to enroll in a journey together to make something extraordinary. At least I hope I'm right. So see him out. Yeah, and then, then Victor does a, a sort of um, chipmunk's voice doing... Um, that's all, folks. That's all, folks. And he keeps on going on and on. And then, in fact, we... voice is saying, on the level, look after yourselves. Look after yourselves. <laughs> Just all the time, we got look after yourselves. Mm. Bye for now. Mm. Well, the boring bit on revolution. Yeah. But we all know where it is. So I don't know where it is exactly. Well, it's... So it's... would you give me where you think it is, and I'll work out where I think it is. It's the same place. And we just cut it out and put something new in it. Just a complete new scene. Mm-hmm. We're happy, you know, going to do that first because it's terrible. So there's plenty of some other people. And every time it's just there. We'll be back in a second with two more questions. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth. And I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Well, as you can tell from the previous questions, I do love hearing from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, just visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. So at least for me, there's a strong pull to put thoughts on PowerPoint or video. However, you've often encouraged the use of memos instead. My changeable thought is has been that PowerPoint might have more impact and is more likely to get read, but perhaps not. So I wonder if you can tr- drill down a little more into memos, when to use them, and what you want to see in a memo. Thanks so much. Take care now. Bye. I totally agree that a PowerPoint or a video, particularly a video, can spread faster and touch more people than a memo. If your goal is to control the narrative, and to show up for a lot of people, that's the way to go. My new book will not reach nearly as many people as a blog post or a video will, or even this podcast on a good day. But I think the key element is controlling the narrative. If you make a video, you're telling us what you think. If you're standing up there with bullets in a PowerPoint, you're telling us what you think. You're creating a deck. Here it is. This is what I had to say. But if you share a Google Doc, you're inviting us to go at our pace, to dig in, to make suggestions, to make comments, to make edits. It's a different sort of communication. It's interaction. And writing, which has only been around for thousands of years, not hundreds of thousands of years, is different 
than oration. It's different than making a video. Because writing, the digital nature of writing, only 26 letters available to everybody, where people can chime in, where people can look deeper and deeper. We don't do that with a video. We don't watch it three, four, five times. We watch it and then we move on. And so, yeah, I love making videos and this podcast and, yes, presentations without bullets. But memos? Memos are designed for interactivity. They're an invitation for people to engage. So I'm in favor of all of them. Hi, Seth. My name is Peter from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, You talk a lot about being indispensable, doing work that would be missed if we were gone. Uh, The question I have is, for those of us that maybe are recent college graduates and we have an idea of where we want to go, what's the distinction between you know, being a cog in a machine and just paying your dues on the way to where you want to go. Thank you for wrapping up this all Q&A episode. Here's my answer. The system, the one that pays us, is based on scarcity, industrialism, often being a cog, showing up and doing what we're told, doing it in the way that we said we would do it, and in exchange, getting what we were promised. Whether that's, will this be on the test, and here's an A, or yeah, I'll do this shift, and then you'll owe me $84. So we need to do those things to pay the bills until our side hustle, until our craft, until that thing we are bringing to the world, our practice, earns us enough trust that people want to pay us for what we do. So I'm in favor of making sure you're paying the bills. It's just really important you don't get seduced lulled into a sense of security by the industrial system. And I've seen it. I lived in the law school dorm for a year. I've seen what happens. So many of these students show up at a fancy law school thinking they're either going to do public interest law or get elected to the Senate. And then the next thing you know, they're grinding it out as an associate on their way to partner. Because the system, the game, is set up that they keep doing that. And they have no time to pursue the activities that would make things better. And so the purpose of the practice is to begin now, not to quit your day job, not to insist that the world show up with prizes when you first begin, but to have a practice, a daily practice, a regular practice of shipping creative work. And you probably won't get paid well for it at the beginning. You might not get paid at all. So yes, by all means, keep your day job. But then over time, drip by drip, day by day, you make a contribution. And if you make enough of a contribution, if you're particular enough, peculiar enough, and most important, remarkable enough, people are going to figure out that they're going to have trouble living without you. Thanks for the work you're doing. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, There is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but When are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not 
gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.